Good morning, Stones. <laughs> and we did. That, that was a great song at the end there. Um, our children would uh, care to go to Children's Church. Um, your instructor will meet you at the back. And as the uh, mini exodus is happening, I just wanted to update you a little bit on the uh, outreach we did at Antelope Valley College. Um, one of the stories, there's tons of stories we could tell. One that, that kind of sticks out in my mind is an administrator, I don't know what her function was there, came up to me and she said, um, uh, I'm so glad you guys are doing this. Uh, she said, we're, at AVC, we're trying to build this sense of community. People just don't have any idea of, of community, and so we're trying to build this community. We're trying to make AVC into this place where people can come and, and, and understand what it means to be in community. And we do all of these programs on all these outreaches, and she points at our banner, and she goes, and you guys are here doing this. This is great. Thank you so much. And a number of times, people would come up and look at us. You go, hey, you want a bottle of water? And they go, huh? Just had never had anybody hand them something for free and not expect anything in return. There people every once in a while go, do you want a donation? How much is it? No, no here. Do well on your finals. Um, and I just want to remind us, why are we doing that? It, it could be seen as, well, we're doing it so we can get people to come to our church. And it would be glorious. It would be great if people came here because we gave them a bottle of water. I think that would be wonderful. But if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, he turns to Jesus and says, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm paying them back fourfold. And what I said at the time was, a heart that is filled doesn't have to keep filling. It overflows. And so part of what we're doing is we're just overflowing. We're, just, we're going there expecting absolutely nothing in return from these folks. We just are overflowing because Christ has filled us. We're going to go overflow into the nations. And if he uses that to draw people to himself, praise God, we'll take it. <laughs> but first and foremost, we're doing it because we have been filled and we want to go help other people. So there's some pictures on the, um, on the display in the hallway if you want to stop and take a look real quick. Um, it, it only captures a small slice of what happened while we were there. Uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a long day, and the second day was pretty hot. Uh, but we all survived, and, uh, and we gave away, I forget what the count was, Jim, what was it, 800? About 900 bottles of water, um, just handing them out to people, and and talked with a bunch of folks, prayed with some folks, uh, evangelized a couple of folks, um, got rebuked by some people. So it was it was a great time. It was really good. So I just wanted to uh, update you on that. Before we look at the word, let me open us in prayer, and I want to start by praying for our AVC outreach. Um, Lord, you are indeed our our rock and our stronghold. Um, and because we're secure, because we are not threatened, because we know that our enemy can't touch us, we are freed, Lord. We are freed to be people who give and pre people who love because you have so loved us. And, Lord, since we are filled and we are loved, we are able to turn and offer and extend that to the world. Lord, I pray for our, our, everyone that we talk to, every bottle of water that went into somebody's hand at, at uh, ABC this past week, Lord, we pray that the, the church being generous would shake their understanding of what it means to go to church, what it means to be a Christian. And Lord, we pray for all of them that you would draw them in some way into a proper relationship with you. Lord, would you show yourself to everyone we spoke to, everyone we prayed for, everyone who rebuked us, everyone who drank our water or took our pencils. Lord, the, the material things are there to communicate 
the true love of, of Jesus Christ to the world. And so, Lord, have mercy and, and be made much of, we pray, in the Antelope Valley. Lord, this morning I, my heart is breaking as I think of the tragedy uh, that happened in London over the weekend, uh, mirrored by the tragedy that happened in Manchester. And, uh, Lord, reading the stories of what occurred is horrific. Lord, um, we just are, are shattered by the, the violence and the ugliness that uh, is perpetuated. And so, Lord, would you, um, would you lead the nation, lead uh, England particularly and then other nations around her to repentance, to trusting in Christ, to not turning towards um, material things that can't bring hope and help because once the bomb goes off, once the bus plows through a barricade, those things are gone. But Lord, we pray that you would use the tragedy to spark revival and to help them remember what it means to be, uh, to have a hope in, in heaven, that a, a treasure that can't be taken away, that thieves can't break in and steal, that moths won't devour, that mildew won't ruin, that buses can't run over. And Lord, for those who have perpetrated this, I, I just want to pray Psalm 5 over that whole situation. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Lord, would you break the people who are doing this? Would you stop them? We pray that you would bring judgment and wrath upon them as they plan these evil, terrible things that injure people who have done them no wrong. And Lord, we commend that to your hands because we know that you will do it in perfect justice, with perfect wisdom and mercy. And so, Lord, would you raise up from that group that was responsible for this, a Paul, who would turn to Christ and lead many to follow him. Lord, would you, we couldn't imagine Paul becoming uh, the, the man he was as he's persecuting and, and arresting the church. Lord, we can't imagine one of these terrorists becoming a Christian and leading many to you, but Lord, you can. So would you accomplish that? And those who won't, those who, who refuse to turn, Lord, we pray that you would stop them in their tracks that before they can do any more damage, they would be destroyed. Lord, we appeal to you because you are the king of the universe. We trust you. We know that you will bring about mercy where mercy is due, justice where justice is due, that they're not in conflict or in struggle with each other. And so, Lord, accomplish your purposes. Be with us now as we look at this text. Help us to focus on who Jesus is in the midst of all of this, in this crazy, broken world. Help us see our king. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at the triumphal entry, but I'm not going to call it the triumphal entry. Um, what I was thinking about as I was preparing for this is usually we get this text on Palm Sunday. And usually we parachute into this text on Palm Sunday where we don't really have the context. We haven't been preaching up to that. We just kind of say, well, it's Palm Sunday, so let's do the triumphal entry. And that's great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing it. But as we've approached this now, we've got this context. We've been going through Luke up to this point. And so um, we want to take everything that Luke has been saying up to this point and flow it in. So this is not going to be your typical Palm Sunday sermon, I, I don't think. Maybe it should be. I don't know. Um, hopefully I'll remember this <laughs> next year on Easter. Um, 
So what's going on here is, is Jesus is, is finally going into Jerusalem. And uh, this morning what we're going to see is there's three sections to this. Uh, the first one is prophetic preparation. Jesus is going to do something acting as a prophet, but that won't be enough. That won't fully explain who he is because the next section is this messianic march as Jesus goes into the city. And then finally, in the end, stones will sing. So you know this is right because it's alliteration. Prophetic preparation, messianic march, stones sing. So it must be right um, because I got alliteration out of it. Uh, I try to avoid that, but it just worked here. So, um, you know, they had a class in seminary on alliteration. No, they didn't. I'm just teasing. So here's, let's take a look at this. The, the, The section begins in verse 28. Luke gives us an introduction. He says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. We've been threatening to go to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks. Now we're on the road. But notice what he says. He says, and when he had said these things, well, what things did he say? What he just said was he told a parable about the kingdom. How some people thought what was about to happen was the kingdom was going to burst in. David's great son would sit on the throne, beat up the Romans, and reestablish Israel as a nation. And, and remember last week, Luke, told us that par- Luke recited that parable from Jesus and said, you have to understand what the kingdom is like. And what we saw was the, the nobleman goes away to a far country. He's going to be gone for a while. And as he's gone, he'll receive his kingdom and then come back. And then he'll rule. So there's this interim between when he goes and when he comes back. Um, and, and in the meantime, he's given his servants things to do. He gives them these minas, these, these coins. And he says, I want you to invest this while I'm gone. And when I return, I'm going to ask for an accounting of it. You've got to tell me what you did with that money that I left with you. But we also had this odd group that was in that parable, these people who didn't want him to rule over them, who sent a delegation ahead to say, hey, don't give this guy a kingdom. We don't want him to be ruling over us. And in the end, he said, bring them in front of me and kill them all. I'm bringing judgment on them. So that's, that's that picture. So and when he had said these things, with those words ringing in their ears, they head off on the road to Jerusalem. So that's kind of the introduction that sets us up and really is going to frame for us this section. So the first one is the prophetic preparation. So when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples ahead saying, go into the village in front of you. When on entering, you find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So what we're getting here is this picture of Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, and he's not a helpless, hapless victim who's stumbling into this trap. He stops as he's approaching Jerusalem, and he says, no, here's how we're going to go in. This is what Jerusalem's approach is going to look like. You guys go into that town and get a colt and bring it back to me. The picture that Luke is building for us here is Jesus is firmly in control of this. He is the one who is deciding when it's the time to go to Jerusalem. He has already told us exactly what's going to happen to him when he goes there. He's not caught on gu- off guard on this. He is aware and he is in control. So he, he tells his disciples, go there and get this colt and bring it to me. And if anybody has any objections, this is what you say to them. Um, so how did, how did this work? Why did it work out this way? Uh, did Jesus arrange this beforehand? Maybe he knew the cult's old owners and he talked to them and said, hey, I'm going to be coming through on this day and I'm going to need a cult. So if anybody shows up taking your cult, it's me. Um, that's possible, but there's really no mention of him ever doing that. 
All four Gospels have this story, and he just comes up and says, go do this, and it happens. So I'm not sure that he necessarily set it up beforehand, though he, he may have. Um, maybe, there's, uh, maybe what's going on here is this custom called Angaria. And what Angaria means is a state official or a, a VIP, a person of note, which would include rabbis, could commandeer private property. It was called impressing the property. Um, we think of impressing as, um, as you know, making somebody think you're really great, but impression, impressing property would be to take it for your own use. Um, that was an ancient tradition. By the way, it lasted for a long time because one of the Bill of Rights, in the Bill of Rights it says that the government can't house troops in your home without your permission. And the reason that's in the Bill of Rights, because you know it happens all the time now, right? <laughs> it, we don't do that. The reason it's there is because the British would show up and say, hey, we're putting these guys in your house. You need to go find someplace else. Um, one of the big contentions after the American Revolution was the British, who ruled the seas at that time, would pull up to an American ship and say, we need 12 sailors. You're coming with us. And they would take Americans and put them on British ships. And that's called impression. They would impress them into service. And they thought they had the right to do that. So maybe that's what's happening here is Jesus, as this well-known rabbi, is using Agar Angaria to just go and take something for himself. That's possible, but there's problems with that one, too. So maybe it's the last one. Um, you know what sharing economy is? It's this new term called sharing economy. Uber, where somebody with their private vehicle comes up and picks you up because they're going that way and, and they get paid. Or Airbnb, where you've got a spare bedroom and you can put it on Airbnb and somebody can stay in your spare bedroom and you make money. That's called a sharing economy. Well, it's not really that new, because back in Jesus' day, they would have sometimes a, what they would consider a communal animal. Maybe a, a mule that had been retired would be put out into the square, and if somebody needed it, they could just hop on and take it, or they could rent it, or you know, just borrow it for the day or something. So maybe this is, this is that cult. Well, I don't think it's that, that either, because how does this cult describe? It's one that nobody's ever sat on. No one has ever been on this thing. This colt has not been broken. It doesn't know how to handle a rider. So I don't think that Jesus arranged this beforehand because can you imagine Jesus coming to you and say, hey, I need a, a colt in a couple of days. I need a, a donkey to ride on, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow yours. Would you look at him and go, well, it's never been ridden, but go for it, dude. If you can break it, good luck. That's probably not what was happening. So I don't think it was, it was arranged beforehand. If he's using Angaria, he's using it very foolishly because he's taken this thing that's probably going to buck him off. And so I don't think that's what's happened. And it's not the sharing economy because that would not be the one that was out there. This, this donkey, this colt, has got a long life in front of it of useful service before it's put into this communal use. So then what happened? <laughs> what's going on that Jesus would say, hey, go and do this? What I think is going on is I think this is Jesus operating as a prophet. He knew that there would be a cult there. He knew that it had never been ridden. How would he know that? He doesn't even go into the village. He sends his, his guys in. How would he know that nobody sat on that? It's not like it has a flag on it that says unridden. He knew the cult would be there. He knew where it would be tied up. When you walk into the village, standing in front of you is going to be a cult. Untie it. And then he knew there would be opposition. And if anybody asks, what are you doing? This is the word that you say to them. So I think this is Jesus acting as a prophet, prophesying this is how this is going to go down. This is what is going to happen. He knew these things because God had revealed them to him. And so he's preparing to go into Jerusalem. This is how I'm going to go in. 
So why on earth did he do it? Jesus tells us the answer. He says the answer is the Lord has need of it. That's why it happened this way. It's because God needed it. So go get the donkey. So what happens? The very next thing that happens is as he's drawing near, oops, I'm sorry, jumped ahead. So those who were sent away went in and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners came and said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the, on the road. It unfolded exactly as he told them. Exactly as he said. If anybody asks anything, because somebody's going to, you're going to find it in this place. They found it exactly the way it was. This is that pre prophetic preparation. As I'm getting ready to go into Jerusalem, this is what it's going to be like. Doesn't that sound like somebody who is fully in control of this situation? Jesus is going because he has determined it's time to go. What's happening is he, he's, remember the, the parable, the, the nobleman is going to go on a long journey. He's going to go to a far country. And so he's preparing to go on that country. This is him going into Jerusalem. He's getting ready for his journey. He is not being taken, dragging, uh, taken kicking and screaming. He is not being dragged into this. And this is exactly what he says in John chapter 10. Jesus is explaining what's happened. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So this is Jesus enacting that. That's, that's Jesus explaining it. This is him enacting it. I am going to go in on this cult, this particular cult, at this time. He is in full control as he's going into Jerusalem. So it was exactly, exactly as he said it would happen. So as he goes in now, they, they take cloaks and they put them on the colt and they set Jesus on them because they didn't have saddles. And as they're traveling, they're throwing their, their garments in the road, kind of preparing the way. Who does that? Who gets that kind of treatment going in someplace? A king, a ruler, somebody of authority. And so that's what they're doing is they're laying out essentially the red carpet. But it's not the red carpet. It's their clothes. They're taking off their cloak and throwing it in the ground so that he can ride over without getting dust all over him, without getting dirt on him, so that he can come in in, in this regal royal fashion. So the next section, the mess messianic march, this is the beginning of it. This is what's happening now. He says, as he drew near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As he's approaching Jerusalem, he's made the turn and heading down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was to the east of Jerusalem, and from the Mount of Olives, you could look in and directly in and see the temple. So the road coming down the hill makes the turn, heading toward Jerusalem, not away from it, and the disciples begin to sing. This is exactly what Jesus had told them. This is exactly what Jesus had told them. In Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, this is how Luke tells this story. He says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, 
I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and you, you, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you notice what's going on there. He mentions a prophet cannot be killed apart from Jerusalem. He knows what's going on. I just said that prophetic preparation, and now he's heading towards Jerusalem where he will be killed. He's told us that. So he knows why he's going into Jerusalem, and he's already told them this is the very words they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm for the king. And so he's already told them that, and now we're beginning to see that happen. This is the king riding into Jerusalem. This is the Messiah coming into the city. Now, the the verse that we always look at on Palm Sunday is really appropriate here. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah is a prophet in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And he prophesied. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is the Messiah riding in as prophesied into Jerusalem. This is Israel's promised Messiah coming to the city, coming to the capital. And that phrase, Israel's promised Messiah, that's in our statement of faith. The Free Church Statement of Faith refers to that. And I think each word in that phrase is extremely important. Israel's promised Messiah. Israel is the focus of God's redemptive work up until this point. It is the covenants have been made with Israel. Abraham, David, the new covenant have been made with Israel. It's all flowing into that. The Jews were given the oracles of God, according to Romans 3.2. This is where it happens, is in Jerusalem. So the Israel's uh, promised Messiah, the fact that it's Israel is, God has been working on this for a long time. He's been working toward this end for a very long time. Promised. The heart of God's covenants. When God makes a covenant with somebody, when he binds himself to somebody, at the heart of that is a promise. I promise And I'm going to make this covenant, not because I'm in danger of breaking this this promise to you, but because I want you to be sure that I've made this promise to you, that it will not be broken. What Paul says in Ephesians 2.12 is that these are the covenants of the promise. So that's that idea of covenant as promise. And in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20. So Jesus is Israel's, where God promised to do all of this redemptive work promised his covenant, his, his oath, his pledge to you that he will save, and then he is their Messiah. He is the Messiah. According to, we'll see this in a couple of weeks, but Luke 23.2, the Pharisees go to Pilate and they start accusing Jesus. And one of the things they say is, uh, he says that he himself is the Christ, a king. So they know Christ, Messiah, means king. So when Jesus is their Messiah coming in, Jesus is the the king who's riding in. He's the one who's going to be the ruler. And, for example, David used that term Messiah when he referred to Saul. Saul was Israel's king. David said, I will not lift my hand against God's anointed. Anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. So the king is God's anointed, and, and David is respecting him. 
So Jesus coming in as Israel's promised Messiah is Jesus is coming in, bringing with him all the covenant promises that have been made. He will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will bring with him the Davidic covenant, that promise that God made into in, for Israel. So the idea that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah, pictured in him riding in, fulfilling the, the prophecy of Zechariah, has tremendous weight. He's coming in for a purpose. It's through the promised king that God's promises will come. That's why there's such anticipation, is we're about to see everything God's promised. Right now, it's, it's coming. It's riding in on a donkey. This is going to be great. So the songs that they sing, um, the Pharisees did not like that. They turn to him and they say, rebuke your disciples. In other words, what they're saying is, is Rabbi, you're not the Messiah, and these people are singing messianic psalms to you. You need to rebuke them and tell them and set them right. They are opposed to the idea that the king is arriving. And so they tell Jesus that he has to rebuke them. And Jesus' response is, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The stones, the rocks on the ground would start singing. The stones that build the temple foundation, the temple walls, the walls of Jerusalem, those stones would open their mouths and start singing. Why is that? It's because the only appropriate response to the arrival of God's promised Messiah is worship, is to celebrate. So, for example, Isaiah 55, 12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Were they expecting, like little Muppets of the mountains, to start singing? Were they expecting trees to grow hands and start clapping? What they were expecting is all of creation is going to respond appropriately to this. There's going to be this, this uproar of creation singing praises to God. The same thing is expressed in Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Nature's response to the coming of the Lord to judge is its cheering. The oceans roar. The streams clap their hands. The hills sing for joy. So when Jesus says, look, if I tell these disciples to be quiet, I promise you the rocks are going to start singing. That's it, the only reasonable, rational response to the arrival of the king. This is a joyous, momentous occasion. So first of all, it, creation is going to respond this way. But I think there's more to rocks than just pieces of stone. There's another illusion here, another picture. John the Baptist, when he's preparing the way for Jesus, as he's preaching the, the coming of uh, the, the Messiah, as he's preaching the coming of the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, he's preaching a message of repentance. He's doing a baptism of repentance. And so in Matthew 3, this is the way he explains it. He's, he's talking to the people who are coming out to him, and he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So those who are going to come and say, well, of course we're going to have the Messiah. He's promised to Abraham. We're children of Abraham. We win. 
What John the Baptist says is don't claim that because God can raise them up from rocks. And that's exactly what he did because that picture of the, the axe at the root of the tree, Romans 11 talks about this olive tree that had branches that were unfruitful, that were broken off. And these wild olive branches were grafted in. Galatians 3.29 says, if you're, if you're in Christ, then you are children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. That's that picture. So the rocks are going to start singing. That was what we were doing this morning. That's why I said good morning stones, <laughs> is the stones were singing. If, if Israel is going to reject their, their Messiah, then he's going to gather in the nations. And so we get to sit here and sing as stones to him. So that's the picture of the Messiah coming in. This, this stone singing is the gospel is going to go out to the nations. It's going to gather more people than they could possibly imagine it would. So here's a question. Why is Jesus on a donkey and not a war horse? Why didn't he come in on some big noble steed? I'm sure if he could commandeer the, the donkey, he could have commandeered a big war horse from somebody. Well, remember at the beginning how Luke said, after saying these things, this is what he did. We have to take that parable that he told and look at this in light of that. This is the nobleman getting on his, his donkey and going on a long trip. You didn't ride war horses forever just for a round trip. You got on a donkey. A donkey was a pack animal. It could carry this stuff. You'd get there slowly, but you'd get there. So Jesus is on a donkey instead of a, a war horse because he's fixing, he's getting ready to go on this long journey. He's going into Jerusalem where he will be killed, where he'll be risen on the third day and he will ascend into heaven to receive his kingship. This is the beginning of the king's journey. He's riding a pack animal. His servants rejoice as he leaves, as they see him go. They're not like, boy, are we glad we're rid of him. His servants are looking and saying, he's going to receive his kingdom. He's going to come back with tremendous authority, with tremendous power. And so what do they do? They rejoice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We can't wait till he comes back. This is going to be wonderful. And what do his enemies say? They rebuke him. Rabbi, tell him to knock it off. We don't want you. You're not the Messiah. You're the rabbi. You're not the king. You're the teacher. So make them be quiet. These are from the parable. These are his enemies who are sending ahead of him saying, hey, we don't want this guy ruling over us. They're opposing him. However, when he returns, when he does come back, so he departs on a donkey, what does he come back on? He's going to return on a war horse. Revelation chapter 19. This is how John saw it in prophetic image. He said, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword, sharp, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh was written a name, King of King 
and Lord of Lords. So he goes out on his journey on a pack mule. He receives his kingdom, and when he comes back, he comes in on a war horse. The army of heaven is all of his saints. We're sitting on, on, on horses with white robes on. We got those white robes from our king. We're sitting on horses. And when he faces his enemies, what do we do? We sit and cheer as our reigning king, as the great ruler rides forward and destroys his enemies. It's, it's an amazing picture, and it fits with that parable. That's exactly what Jesus had been talking about. This is how this is going to go forward. So he rides into Jerusalem knowing full well what awaits him. He's going to be opposed. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be taught, treated shamefully. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be crucified, and he will be put in a rented tomb. And then three days later, he'll rise. Forty days after that, he will ascend to heaven. He's gone on his, his long journey. So where are we in this story? Where do we fit into this? Well, we're either the disciples who are singing praise, who are waiting, anticipating the return of the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Come, Lord. Or we're in the other camp. We're the adversaries saying, we don't want him to rule over us. I don't want that. Like I said, the only appropriate response to this is praise, worship, joy, to think that our king is head off to get his kingdom and is coming back. So what happens when you don't always feel the joy, the worship, the praise? What happens when sometimes it just feels like, gosh, he's been gone a long time? How do you stir that? Well, one of the things I think we have to remember is those enemies are not just sitting there as enemies. You were once an enemy. There was a time when you didn't trust him, when you weren't anticipating his return. So the minas that he's given us, we're supposed to invest. We're supposed to multiply them. And so we're going out and we're, we're calling to the enemies and saying, hey, come and join us. Come and be with us. So I think John Piper said it really well. Missions exists because worship doesn't. So we go out where they're not worshiping and saying, you guys, there's something you got to know. There's something so tremendous, so great, rocks are going to start singing if you don't open your mouth. And so we go out with this tremendous message of this great king who's, who's gone off to receive his kingdom and is coming back. And we're, we're watching as these rocks start singing with us. So that's the thing to keep in mind as we're struggling, because it is a long time. So far, 2,000 years. The stopwatch hasn't stopped yet. We're still waiting. It is a long time. And sometimes it can look like and feel like the evil's winning, the king's not coming. We're just stumbling through. And, and that's why we have to fight for faith in those times. We have to really struggle to say, no, I, I demand that I believe these things. And the, the key, that, the, the tools that God has given us to do that, he's given us his word, his promise. And so what's with the Old Testament? One of the folks I was talking with at uh, Alpha was asking, what's with the Old Testament? You know, you talk to Christians and they always talk about the New Testament. It's like just this little sliver, a third of it. So what's with the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a thousands of years of faithful witness to this is what God promised and this is what he's done, leading to the fulfillment of the promise coming in Christ. So when you're struggling, when you're saying, man, it's been a long time. Dude, it's only been 2,000 years. 
It's not that long. Look at the Old Covenant. Take a look in the Old Testament and watch. God has, has promised Abraham, and it's thousands of years. Well, God is fulfilling that promise. God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That was much more than 2,000 years. But he's given us the Old Testament as this, this witness to history saying, no, this is going to happen. And watch how I've been faithful over and over and over again to all my promises. Can you wait? Can you trust me in these promises now? And that's the fight for faith is to say, no, Lord, I'm, I, I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I know what's going on around me, but I know what's coming. The king is going to arrive. And so that's the, the tools you use to fight for faith in those times. And then the other thing that I think is really helpful to fight for faith is when you share that with somebody else and you watch somebody go and you watch that stone start singing, that is tremendously faith building. Because you go, wow, he is still working. He is still working. He's still bringing people to himself. And, and so our call, our task here is, while the king is riding into Jerusalem, we're to be faithful. Continue to sing. It's a good thing that we sing. It's an appropriate thing that we sing. It's right that we sing. Guess what we'll be doing for a lot of eternity? There's going to be a lot of singing going on. We're going to be praising him for a long time. So this is, this is our king. This is the king riding off. It looks bad right now, doesn't it? He's on a donkey, not on a war horse. He's not covered in a white robe. He's got people's dirty clothes in front of him. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be handed over to the authorities and lied against. And so you can look at this and go, well, we lose, man. It's over. We've lost. But he's not done. He's still working. He's still working on this process. He's taking it one step at a time, and then he's going to go off. And he warned us he's going to go off. And he's begun for a long time. But when he comes back, the reason we sing in response to that is because, remember, the other part of that parable was the kingdom of God. They thought the kingdom of God was about to come. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign reign over creation. The reason we sing in response to this is because that's the way it's supposed to be. We're seeing that dawning, breaking, pardon me, breaking in in little steps is all the wrong, all the injustice that we see in the world today. The reason that we have a reaction against injustice is because it's not supposed to be there. The reason people have a reaction against prejudice, against crime, against um, all of this exploitation that happens in the world, whether they're believers or not believers, is because it ain't supposed to be there. It wasn't created that way. And so our hearts sing, our hearts cry out for this ideal. And non-believers and people who don't trust in God, who don't believe the Bible, it gets distorted and twisted into their own kind of image of what it should be. But we're looking at it going, Lord, we want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So that's our hope. That's why it bothers us. So we're anticipating the king coming and setting it right. We're waiting for his return. We're waiting for the war horse. Until then, we have the donkey. Until then, we have stones to convert. We have stones to preach to. We want stones to be singing. So in anticipation of our, our king returning with his kingdom, let's be investing those mine as well, investing those coins well, doing what he's told us to do while he's gone. Let's pray. Lord, this, this first step toward Jerusalem um, 
always makes my heart heavy. We've been watching you do amazing things. Confront religious leaders who are full of themselves. Comfort the broken, the poor, people oppressed by demons, hampered by sickness, trapped in prostitution. And Lord, it's been a, a thrill to watch you do these things. That's why with the disciples, we do the same thing. We, we recognize the mighty deeds that you've done and, and celebrate. But walking into this last stage of the gospel where you're heading toward Jerusalem always gives me a heavy heart because we know what's coming. Lord, I pray that we would see past, as you did, the cross to the glory. Lord, I pray that we would see past the brokenness in this world to the glory that will come. And in the meantime, Lord, may we fight against the injustice, the prejudice, the oppression, knowing, Lord, that, that and those enemies have all been defeated. Lord Jesus, I want to see many stones singing. Would you send revival to the Antelope Valley? Would you send your spirit to waken many stones? Stones don't naturally sing, Lord. That's a supernatural act that you do, that you work in stones to open their mouths. As Balaam's donkey could not normally speak, you opened her mouth so that she could speak. Lord, stones don't normally sing. You have to open their mouths. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that here in the Antelope Valley. We pray for a lot of singing stones around us. And Lord, we pray that not so that we would have full chairs every Sunday and a, a booming budget and a large staff, but Lord, because we want to see your name made much of. Fill your kingdom with people to praise you. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.